of Jonah chapter 3, incredible passage. Uh, it was Martin Luther who said that God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. We see that in Jonah's life, a man who went wayward, yet the Lord used in all his weakness to bring about his word to the people that were very wicked, very far from God, that would lead to great revival. In Martin Luther's life, we see a number of similarities in the boldness that he stood with in the Word of God. That relates to what we see here in our passage today. It was actually 500 years ago today at the Diet of Worms, this formal examination by Roman Catholic officials of Martin Luther asking him to recant the writings and his teaching that were indeed saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. And to that charge in his defense, Luther said these words, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. One of the components that Jonah demonstrates for us in chapter 3 and that we as believers often wrestle with in our life is to believe that the blessing of actually abiding in the Word of the Lord is greater than the things of this world. The message that we proclaim when we communicate God's Word is greater than anything we could muster by our own strength. The blessings that are ours in God's Word are greater than any affections that this world might try to capture us with. So this is good news for us this morning. My prayer for us as we walk through this text is that God would build for us a greater affection for His Word to trust and to say humbly as Luther did and as Jonah finally goes and arises and goes and does the Word of the Lord that the blessings of abiding in the Word of the Lord are greater than anything else we could ever hope to muster on our own. So, beloved, would you turn with me as we continue back through this passage that our elder Ralph read for us a moment ago, as we unpack this central idea that blessed are those who live according to the Word of the Lord. Blessed are those who live according to the Word of the Lord. So let's look at three blessings that are yours. They're mine if we but abide in the word of the Lord. We notice in verses 1 and 2, the first blessing, that there is a blessing of clarity, a blessing of clarity in God's word that will take us out of our comfort zones. This is a good thing to be taken out of our comfort zones according to the word of the Lord because there's clarity in why we're going outside of our comfort zones. They call them comfort zones for a reason. That's where you're comfortable in that zone. I know I'm getting deep here already from the beginning. You're like, Brent, that's the most fascinating thing I've ever heard. They're comfort zones because we don't want to go past that point. But God's Word reminds us, as it does about Jonah, that it's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. It's about His glory. And that's what we see with God in His Word here. He comes very graciously a second time, just like Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. This clear restating of what God's Word and way is. It's the true way of life, for it's from God's Word. What we notice in this text, though, is you think about to this point, if this is one of your first Sundays with us in Jonah, Jonah has had quite a wayward, crooked path to this point. 
But good news, the Lord can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Jonah has just been vomited up from the whale. He's gone intentionally the opposite direction of where God's word told him to go. God's word said, arise and go to to Nineveh. And instead it says that that Jonah got up, went to Joppa, and then went down this way to Tarshish. He went the complete opposite direction was his heart's desire. Because he knew exactly who God was. He knew that God is holy and just, but he's also merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. He always keeps his promises. And his fear was that the Ninevites, these wicked people who have done such evil things against Jerusalem and against Israel, that they would hear of who God is and that they would be so pierced to their hearts, the Lord would remove the scales from their eyes that they would come to faith and repent, believing upon God. And Jonah did not want them to know the mercy of God. He wanted them to know the just wrath of God for eternity. He wanted them to be destroyed. Now, Jonah has been in the the belly of this fish, a very claustrophobic environment, certainly, we would imagine. And Jonah has prayed to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he commits to go and to do God's word. And so the spit, the, the spit, the fish spits him up upon the land where he's supposed to go. And now the word comes a second time. But it's the same word in chapter 1, verse 2, as it is here in chapter 3. You see, God does not edit His Word to fit our desires. And that's a good thing. Because God is steadfast and unchanging. He does not edit it to fit Jonah's desire. Matter of fact, He doesn't take a, a field research test. He doesn't read the room with Jonah. He doesn't come to Jonah and say, Jonah, listen, I know I said I wanted you to rise and go to Nineveh and speak the word that I'm going to give you, but you've had a rough week. That whole whale thing. So why don't you go take some personal time off, get a little vacation, and then let me know if you feel like doing this. He also didn't say, hey, how do you feel about Nineveh now? Are you okay with the Ninevites? Would would you mind going and telling them what I wanted you to? He doesn't do that because he is the Lord, and his way is unchanging, and his word is steadfast for us to build up our lives and our identity. To abide in His Word is good. There is clarity in what Jonah is to do. But the clarity does not mean the path he's going to walk he has to like. Nor does it mean it's an easy path. But it's a clear way. Can you relate to this? The path and the way and the Word of the Lord for your relationships and for your career and your desires and all of these things and hard conversations and hard decisions to make regarding the future. How do you reconcile your sin? And and the component of confession of that can be humiliating and fearful. And yet, the way of the the Lord is clear. And it's the better way. It's the blessed way. And it leads us right out of our comfort zones. And this is good because it leads us out of our comfort zones more into the image of Christ. That's what's good for us. That the Lord would shape us in this way. So I ask you a question in this way. Jonah's comfort zone cannot justify his disobeying God's word. Every one of us in this room has different circles of influence. Every one of us in this room has different personality sets and things we're most comfortable doing. And certainly the Spirit has uniquely gifted all of us as believers. There's no doubt about that. But Jonah doesn't have a right to say, this is who I am, so I'm not doing that. And it's the same in our lives. Regardless of our dispositions, Regardless of our personality types, none of us have the right 
or our fears. None of us have the right to edit God's Word. So I want to ask you a question. Let's consider some nouns or people in your life. As the Spirit of God and as we've been in the Word of God, has the Holy Spirit convicted you to pursue someone with the gospel that you've not done so with? You know that person's just upon your mind right now. You you know, okay, this person. Every one of us have different faces and different people of influence. Certainly if we have kids or grandkids or or nieces or nephews, they're included in this list that God's uniquely entrusted into our influence and the ability to interact with. But in a greater way, who are the people in our neighborhood and our dorms and different relationships that God's given us? Because all of these things are seasonal and contextual. We're all only going to be alive for so long. We're all only here for so long. So we say, Lord, what are the, who are the people you brought into my life to pursue with the gospel? To be burdened in prayer for them and to walk after them. And then on the other side, are there relationships that have been frayed? You've been sinned against or sinned against somebody else and you've been hesitant and you know when we work through a passage like this and maybe this, the Lord puts something upon your heart of reconciliation and forgiveness and God's mercy, you know, Spirit of God, I do not want to talk about that person. That's way too far outside of my comfort zone. And where we have those, we say, no, Lord, help me believe that your way and the blessing of abiding in your way with clarity is better than my comfort zone. So there's people, and I'd encourage you, next Sunday is the, is the family service. That's K through fifth graders will join us in this service. And one of the gifts that the Lord gives us in, in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is this reconciling time. We're reminded that we've been reconciled to God, not by what we've done, but by what Christ has done for us on our behalf. It's through His blood we entered into the new covenant by faith. And so we enter in as people who, sinners that have been made clean, we've been rescued from the slot buckets of our sin and life and welcomed to the banquet table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been given reconciliation with the Lord. And then also now as believers, we have reconciliation with one another. And so that means in the next week, if you've, got, if you've sinned against or you've got a frayed relationship with another brother or sister in Christ, to go and to reconcile that before that time of the Lord's Supper next week. It's a, it's a healthy gift that the Lord gives to the church. So people, where are your comfort zones with people? Where are your comfort zones with places? Where do you need to go? What are the places that the Lord's entrusted to your influence and care, your, your work, your responsibilities that God's given you that's unique from everybody else? How do you go to those places? How do you view those places? Will you set them before the Lord? And and, and an easy way to say that is, in my own life, is there somewhere that I want to say is off the table for stewarding the influence the Lord has given me? If there's somewhere you're more resistant, then trust that the blessing of abiding in the clarity of His Word is better. And third, things. People, places, and things. My elementary or high school English teacher would be so happy. Hopefully I learned nouns before late high school, but people, places, things. How do we handle the money that God's entrusted to us, the talents that God's entrusted that certainly we've worked to cultivate and to become better stewards of those things? How do we handle those things? But also the things that we say, what are the things that we desire to say? We all know there's situations that happen in which we know what we want to say, and then we know there's things that God's Word says we should or should not say, correct? At the end of Proverbs 17, though the fool appears wise if they bridle their tongue. That is the best backhanded compliment you can ever give to somebody. Just quote that proverb and be like, you are really, really good at this. Because like, wait, are you calling me a fool? What did you just say there? Or did you say I'm really good guarding my tongue? 
What are the things that you desire to say to people? Compared to what are the things the Lord desires you to say by His Word? Jonah desired to not tell the Ninevites that they were under the judgment of God. Think about that. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? You would think uh, uh, this man, this prophet, who despises these people because of what they've done, you would think it would be the highlight of his life to be able to go toward the middle of the city, three days' journey, a day's end, to go there and to tell them God's judgment is going to befall you, your wicked, evil acts that you've committed against Him, He's going to wipe you out in 40 days. And I'm going to go build a tent up here so I can watch the Lord rain down fire and brimstone like He did on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be awesome. You would think He would want to do that. But He does not want to do this. Why? Because He knows God. He knows that God is so gracious and kind and merciful that even people who have lived generationally in wickedness and idolatry, they're not outside the grasp of the grace of God. He knows if they look to God and they see the love of God and the kindness and the justice of God, by default they'll be forced to look at themselves and realize their brokenness and their hopelessness, that they've come short of the glory of God. And in this, they'll hear the message that God has given them a message of hope, of turn. And in turning, they'll live a life of response and repentance and faith in the God who's given them that word. God, man, Christ, and response. What Jonah would prefer on his own would be for the Lord to actually send a false prophet. We won't flip there, but you can write down for reference Ezekiel chapter 13. In Ezekiel 13, we're told that, that false prophets have been sent to Israel en masse. They've, they've actually boiled themselves up. They weren't sent by the Lord. These false prophets come, and, and a mark of the false prophets is very simply that they make it up. He says they're inventing their own prophecies. Just as there's been a wealth of false prophets that went into Israel, there are a wealth of false prophets in local churches all around the world today. Now, what did the false prophets say in Ezekiel 13? Here's an interesting hallmark of the false prophets. The false prophets edited the word of God and said this. Peace, peace, everything is good. Continue on. And that's what God judges the false prophets. He speaks of the terrible things that are going to, the wrath that's going to befall them. And here's what he says in, in Ezekiel 13.10. He says, these evil prophets deceive my people by saying all is peaceful when there is no peace at all. It's as if the people have built a flimsy wall that these prophets are trying to reinforce it by covering it with whitewash, with painting it. Tell these whitewashers that their wall will soon fall down. A heavy rainstorm will undermine it. A great hailstorms and mighty winds will knock it down. That sounds so much like our culture today, doesn't it? We have no right to edit the word of the Lord. How much more acceptable and postable is a message that God is pleased with how an unbeliever lives? He doesn't really care how we live as believers. You just care for what you want to do. What do you think will make you happy? If it feels natural to you, walk in that way. Explore it further. 
experiment and walk in this way. And it's good because He loves you so much. He just desires you to find happiness. What makes you happy is good. Who is anybody else to judge? That message will get shares. And please, please, if you rewatch this sermon, do not edit that part down and post that like we teach that here. Okay. That'd be a nightmare for me. Because we don't have the right to edit the word of the Lord with the loved ones that God has placed into, into our lives. And who are we to love? Everyone. So with compassion and humility, we say that the Lord and His way is better. Praise God for giving us a clarity in His word that is better than any editing we could ever do or comfort we could try to muster up from our own strength. Amen? His way is the better way, the way of life. Let's look at the second blessing that is ours that we see in Jonah's life. If we but abide in the word of the Lord. Verses 3 through 4, there is a blessing of courage from God's word that brings us into his great commission. A blessing of courage. Now we won't go there, but you remember in Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah, a wicked, great but wicked cities. When God sent his messengers to clearly articulate his word, those two angels appeared as men. Do you remember what the wicked people tried to do to those two men. They clawed at the door all night long, trying to ravage them and perhaps eventually murder them. Jonah is given a task also to go into the heart of this great pagan city and to give a message that could very well be quite offensive, that the judgment of God is going to befall you in but 40 days. What could they have done to the messenger? if they did not receive his message. But he's courageous to do what the Lord has appointed him to do. Verse 3 says it like this. God says, arise and go. I love verse 3. So Jonah arose and went. It's a great summary, isn't it? God said, arise and go. Jonah said, okay. Arising and going. You don't need to send a bird to pick me up. Like the whale. That was a whale joke. All right, here we go. I'm going that direction. That's the pleasure that we have in the word of the Lord. Clarity, but also courage. The Lord will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. As a matter of fact, flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. There's a courage that becomes the believers, not that the way is easy, and not that the way won't cost our lives, but that he will indeed never leave us nor forsake us. So to do the word and way of God in every one of our relationships and every one of our dreams and set our goals and hopes for the future before the Lord. There is courage in this. We looked at Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. We see the great commission. You see, the word of God is living and active. And it will not return void as it goes forth. The word of God by default can't just sit in us. It works in us. The Spirit-breathed Word of God shapes us always. So He's convicting us of sin always. That's why as believers, as, as Pastor Stephen speaks about when we have our time of, of confession and assurance, that in 1 John we are a confessing people. That's just what we do. The Spirit's working in us, showing us areas where He's refining us. He's comforting us. He's working us. He's shaping us. He's pruning off the areas where our identity is not in Him. And He's rooting us in Christ. And this is good news. This is such good news. 
Because the Lord's Word courageously brings us into mission. The Lord's Word that He gave to Jonah wasn't just so Jonah could be like, oh, thanks for telling me. The Word of the Lord came to Jonah so that Jonah would arise and go. That's what the Word of the Lord does in our lives every day. That's why we call it God, man, Christ, and response. We're to now go with the Word of the Lord that we've sat under and, and listened to and been a part of and participating in. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20, this is called the Great Commission. In your Pewback Bible, that's page 835. This is something you may not be familiar with. As a matter of fact, a 2018 Barna study found that only 17% of church-going people could clearly explain the Great Commission. 17%. So let's look at this together. Because believer, this is what you're called to. You're to be, we're to be courageous because we know the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. And He's given us a mission to make disciples, every one of us, from the oldest to the youngest. He says in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How much authority? Go, therefore, and make disciples. Making disciples is the mission. Going. Making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit under the authority of the Lord. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have courage because we serve a great God. David has courage to face Goliath because his eyes are on the great Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Courage comes not because it won't be costly. Courage comes because our eyes are on the Lord and the message of the Lord. That's our strength. The Spirit of God working in us as we aim to courageously, clearly articulate His Word. So as we look at the great commission of going, going, we talk about as disciples, this is a mission that we have in our church. Word, worship, service, family. That these four components are what we say a healthy disciple is growing in these ways. Devoted to the Word. So every disciple, every believer should be a part of a group. At least one group that's centrally devoted to understanding and walking out the Word of God. It could be a huddle group, it could be a women's group, a men's group, huddle group, whatever. Be involved in that group. Walking through the Word of the Lord. Applying in accountability. Second, Gospel-centered worship, that this should be a priority in how we schedule our lives, gathering together with the body of Christ to sing His praises and sit under His words, to have our life shaped more and more by the Word of God. This should prioritize our monthly schedules. Corporate worship and then sacrificial service, two components. The lives of service that come out through serving in a, in a ministry intentionally together, using of our gifts to make disciples, but also serving others verbally by being able to confidently and competently share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. The hope that we have in Jesus, that every member would be confident to do so. That I know the gospel and I can explain it to you and call you to respond to it. And then live life as family, practicing the one another's. Living out the, the word of God together, being, having margin to practice hospitality close enough to each other that we can sin against each other and forgive each other. This discipleship component, he says, go, make disciples, baptizing them. So if you're a believer, this is a part of the command that Jesus has given you. You, don't, you. you ought not be baptized to be saved. You're saved and therein, obeying Jesus' command, you ought to be baptized. I want to be clear, when you come to Christ, there's not some shot clock above your head. 
and says, I've got, I expire on this date like milk. So I've got to be baptized by this. But you, when you understand the Lord's command for our life, we ought to aim to be obedient. So we have a baptism class next week. Any time you can contact an elder uh, or a staff member, we would love to sit down with you and help you explain baptism with you. This is a beautiful gift that the Lord gives us. It encourages the body. So I think next week we're having some baptism. I promise you as a congregation, we are spurred on to love and good deeds by observing the ordinance of baptism as that new believer, that believer is obeying Christ in that way. And then teaching them to observe all things. This is the life that God has given us to help each other follow after Christ and teach a new believer to the point that they are also going and making disciples of Jesus Christ. So the Great Commission, courage is ours, not because it's easy, but because it is good. And the greater pleasure of abiding in the Word of Christ is greater than anything that this world can have to offer. Amen? So the blessing of courage that God gives us in His Word. Third, verses 5 through 9. There is a blessing of community built by God's Word that by nature it equalizes everything. It overcomes, I phrased it in this way, the classes, the divisions of man. It overcomes this thing in our identity. We're all equal before the Lord in our sin. Now, God's judgment is appropriate in different ones, but saying in this way, we've all come short of the glory of God. God's justice is perfectly measured out upon rebellion. All sin is equal in that it all brings death, but sin, of course, is different in the level of judgment God perfectly will appoint to it. What does this mean in verse 6? Did you read about the king of Nineveh? What's it say in verse 6? This is the king. Now you see, I jumped over verse 5 for a reason, but I want to look in verse 6. If there was somebody that we would say of all people, matter of fact, what has most of your life been spent talking about for the last year besides COVID? The presidency. Here we have the king of Nineveh. The king of the Assyrian people. Pride. Power position of authority. And what does he do? The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. Was he made to arise from his throne? He chose to arise from his throne. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe and he covered himself in sackcloth, the cloth from sacks. And he sat in ashes. Can you imagine such a scene in Washington, D.C.? Imagine how that would ripple across everything. You see, there is a blessing of community built by God's Word that overcomes the classes because God's Word transforms the greatest on the inside out to become as the least. That's what happens with the king. The position of the greatest, his heart's pleasure becomes to be as the least. He's not fearful of what his people will think of them. He's not afraid there's going to be a coup with somebody else thinking, here's my opportunity. The king has made a fool for himself. Let me rise to power. He's so grieved at the realization of who the Lord actually is and the idolatry that he's been in and led the people in that he's pierced to the heart. Has that happened to you? Have you grown up knowing of Christ but not actually being pierced to the heart and turning from sin and trusting in him? 
desiring to be with him and know him. This man is broken. And he becomes like in Matthew chapter 20. What Jesus tells his disciples. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus' disciples are jockeying for position. How do we become great? I want to become greater in the kingdom when the Lord ushers his kingdom in. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, not among my disciples. We will not be like the the world and the rulers of this world, the Gentiles. He says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Why? Verse 28 is the kicker. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is the way of life. What we see Jesus teaching His disciples about the kingdom of God and living in response to the Word of God is naturally what happens to the king of the Assyrians when he hears of the reality of his sin against the holy God. He is pierced to the heart and becomes just like the rest of the people. Humbled and sitting in ash. For the first time it appears the king of this great city becomes great before the Lord, the triune God. Sitting in a pile of ash. In every one of our lives, I would be confident to say that each of us has a measure of pride that we're fearful of looking undignified. We're fearful of saying whether even even whether it's a group of confessing this sin for accountability or being broken in it. We're fearful of how the Lord, what we could lose in walking in the way of the Lord. But I would say let us be like the King, regardless of the positions of pride or influence we have. Let us humble ourselves courageously and lean into the community that the Word of the Lord does in making us new, revealing our sin, and respond appropriately as servants before the Lord. God's Word builds a community that overcomes the classes. For many years, there's been this thing called servant leadership. If you've been in business or studying that at all, you've probably heard servant leadership. Robert Greenleaf in 1970 coined this term in his paper, servant leadership. And he took the idea of traditional leadership and and business management is that of transactional leadership. So if I'm working for you, you pay me, and I complete this transaction by working for you. Do the jobs you give me to do. And Robert Greenleaf said, hey, actually a better way of production and, and a better way of health is if the boss, the leader, will put the needs of their employees and consider those and serve them by trying to meet those needs. And this will lead to greater production. And that's a good thing. And there's a whole Robert Greenleaf organization and all that. That's, that's fine. That's good. But that's not biblical servant leadership. Biblical servant leadership, as we see it in the heart of the king, the king is not getting off his throne and sitting at ash because he wants the people to like him better. He's not getting off the throne and sitting at ash because he wants a more productive society. He's doing so because he knows who God is and he abides and responds to the word of the Lord. So as believers, we hear what Jesus says and we say, let us serve regardless of what happens, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So the Lord counts us worthy to give of our lives to one another and for the good of each other, speaking the words of life and serving others. 
And because it is the way of the Lord, yes, it will lead to bounty and lead for good. So, God's Word builds a community that overcomes the classes. Because why in verses 5 through 9? All of us, from the greatest to the least, we are all privileged to surrender our influence to advance His mission. From the greatest to the least, every one of us is privileged to surrender our influence to advance His mission. Our culture right now is almost turning the word coveting to covet into a virtue. Do you see how not only the media but others separate in, in this idea of intersectionality are breaking down culture to every group in every little niche and pitting each other against? We see it happening. And, and so your identity becomes what box you're in. And turning the boxes so easily and manipulating against each other to I deserve more, I deserve that. It's everywhere. It's becoming the air that we breathe. And one day we won't recognize it. But it is not what we see in the people of God. It's not what we see here in the Ninevite kingdom. The Ninevites, from the greatest to the least, they take whatever influence the Lord has given them and they lay it down. And they humble themselves. Look what he says in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast. And they put on sackcloth. So they did it on their own, regardless of what the king was going to do. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Does that make you uncomfortable? Is the Bible archaic because it recognizes from the greatest of them to the least of them? The greatest being the king that it's working toward. God has raised up this king. Kings of judgment on a people and unrighteous kings there be judgment upon a people. Righteous kings that will be a blessing to the land and the people. But what are the people responsible for? All that they can be responsible for is to end their life, look to the Lord, and be fruitful with little. So when the Messiah comes and he looks at this woman that gives two little cents, he doesn't look and say she deserves a thousand cents. That's not very much money, but she deserves a lot more. He doesn't say that. He said, Great is that woman in the kingdom of God. Greater is that woman than everyone else who has come. She was faithful in the kingdom of God and how he works. The quiet one, the small one, the one that will never see or know their name, the one that will never come to a stage and be able to expound on a word of God. They're faithful in the little. The Lord blesses in a kingdom way that we'll never understand the significance of. Just like a little worm we're going to hear about next week. Never underestimate the joy of being faithful with the little influence the Lord has given each of us. Aim for excellence, but never covet others. That is a, it's a loser's game. We'll never be content in that game. But great joy is ours, and great joy is the people's who move to repentance and belief in the word of the Lord and take their little bit of influence and steward it for the greatness of God. And that's what the king does. We get to verse 7. The people have been moved to belief and repentance. This outward sign that shows an inward contrition. They go to fasting and they, and they go to putting on sackcloth. And the king now comes to him. And he issues a proclamation and he publishes proclamation. There's five decrees. And do you see what the decrees were? This is kind of unique. Did you notice this? The decrees also 
include the pets, the livestock. And that seems a little strange, right? Hey, don't feed your animals for a couple of days. I'm never going to say that. But if I said that, that'd be really questionable. I'll never say that, okay? Don't think I'm going to. It's not going to be a next step point. But the king tells us exactly why he gives these five let us's. You see, he's a wise king. And he believes that who the Lord is is exactly who Jonah told the mariners he was. He's the God over the land and the sea. He's not a regional God. He's the one true God. And so he knows if God relents in his judgment and wrath and spares their life, they will be like, they will be like, a guilty, contrite criminal who is loosed to go into the desert. Their life is spared, but they're going to die in a matter of time. And the animals that were probably included in some kind of idolatry in their worship, even the animals, he says, make them represent repentance to what we've done. Because it would be like this, a contrite criminal that's not only loosed, but has given back their full inheritance and wealth so that they can actually prosper. Because that's how great and powerful the mercy of God is. He restores us. He washes away our shame. And that's good news this morning. Why? Because look in verse 9. He asked a question. I want you to look at verse 9. Who knows, the king says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? Who knows? I'm going to ask you to do something. If you know that indeed, if you will but trust in Christ, that He will indeed relent from His fierce anger for it was placed upon Jesus, on His body on the cross, would you raise your hand? You know you know. The king in desperation with no leverage cries out, humble ourselves, who knows? Maybe he'll relent. You as one who has trusted in Christ, your sin is done away with and he has adopted you by grace through faith in Jesus. You become an heir in Christ. All that is his will be yours and is yours. Your hope is seated in the heavens, this eternal inheritance that is yours. So we can say, we know God has turned and He has relented from His fierce anger so that we will not perish for the coming wrath of God, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says. That's our hope. Do you believe the blessings of the Lord are better? Do you believe the blessings of the Lord are better? Yes. And our next steps, number one, as believers, we know that it's centrally not about the, the messenger, but is about the message of the Word of God. So the question is, is what areas of influence has God given you? And as you consider the influence that God has given you, is there an influence that you fear losing? A relationship, if the gospel becomes more, more to the front of that relationship, you fear it could fray and you could lose it. Would you... Share that with the Lord. Bring it to the Lord in prayer. Number two, 
We talked of clarity, of courage, and the blessing of community. Here is very strategic and intentional assignment. Would you have this conversation with somebody that is a part of our church family and have this conversation also with somebody that either does not know Christ or at the very least you could say they certainly do not have a church home? And here's what I'd like you to consider sharing. In which of these three areas, the blessings of a clarity of what you're to do, a blessing of courage to go outside your comfort zone, or a blessing of community you found, in which of these three areas has the Spirit of God most shaped you by His Word this year? How has the Lord most challenged you and blessed you in courage and in clarity and community? And share that with someone. If you're thinking, how do I have that conversation? Just be like, I know this is strange, but my pastor assigned me homework this week. Can I discuss this with you? Walk in it. Number three, as repentant Christians, we sing now as a people who can restate verse 9. So after our congregational prayer, we'll have ministry leaders here to be able to pray with you and encourage you. And we want to lean into community and build and walk in the way of the Lord, making disciples together. But I would like for you to to read verse 9 together and how I've summarized it as we stand and worship the Lord. We know that God has turned from His fierce anger and relented so that we will not perish, but we have everlasting life. Would you stand with me and we'll say that together before we respond in song and soon leave this room. Let's say it together. We know that God has turned from His fierce anger and relented so that we will not perish, but we have everlasting life.